good to be with you again this evening as we end off the Lord's Day around the Word of God. And if I could ask you to turn in your Bibles this evening to 1 Peter, I will be resuming our series in the Gospel of Mark again next Sunday evening. Uh, but tonight we're just going to be looking at a, at a one-off message on the topic of holiness, which is tied into the subject that we considered this morning about how we ought to live and conduct ourselves as the household of God. And the verses that I want us to look at this evening uh, are 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Uh, but we're going to read from uh, the beginning of the chapter, chapter 1, verse 3. So 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, 
and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Just so far, uh, let's just come to the Lord again in a word of prayer. Father, we do pray and ask now that as we come to your word this evening, just a couple of verses that focus our attention on the call to be holy as you are holy. Uh, we pray, Lord God, that again, we would come to this topic not uh, as we saw in the video this morning as Muhammad came to the list of rules and regulations that were imposed upon him to try and, and gain approval with, with Allah, something which could never be, be done in the system of Islam and how that led to bondage in his heart. But may we come this evening as those who have had the law of God written on our heart, those who have the Holy Spirit within us, uh, those who delight to know more about what it is that pleases you and how we should live our lives in a way that brings glory and honor to your name. So help us to come to this portion this evening uh, with eager expectation that you will do great things in us as we are transformed day by day into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so help us as we consider your word together now we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning in God's Word, we looked at uh, 1 Timothy 3.15, uh, where Paul wrote to remind the church uh, in Ephesus how one ought to behave, that this mandate, uh, how we must behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And I want us to just spend some time this evening thinking a bit more generally, a bit more broadly uh, about this topic of holiness uh, a couple of years ago, when we were living in Moy River, uh, I was asked to, to preach a message at the KZN Baptist Association Council meeting, and, and I was asked to speak on this topic of holiness. Uh, and I was given 1 Peter 3.15 as my text, uh, you shall be holy for I am holy. And when the agenda uh, for this council meeting went out to all the churches, I received a, a letter from a, a godly retired pastor, which went something like this. Dear Clinton, I'm delighted that you will be addressing the council on such an important subject of holiness, which today is so often neglected in our exclusive focus on grace. And I must admit that at that time of his email, I had not yet started preparing uh, the message, and so this pastor that I respected, his email in a sense set the initial direction for my thinking, which was grace versus holiness, kind of two seemingly opposing themes, one set against the other, and my thinking started to develop uh, along the lines of preaching a message that would try to show from Scripture that um, just like God's sovereignty and Man's responsibility are, are kind of two opposing doctrines that are taught in Scripture and that we keep in tension. So too God's word requires holy living. It's taught in Scripture. And therefore we need to hear it and understand it, but kind of keep it in tension with what the Bible says about our salvation being all of grace. 
And so as I started my preparation, I, I went to various books and commentaries that I had on this subject of holiness uh, and what God's word requires of us as his people to live holy lives. And, and there was some good stuff in those books, the kind of stuff that, that makes even the most saintly person feel like they were living a truly ungodly life. I started to feel like the message as it was shaping in my mind was going to give Paul Washer a run for his money. Um, those of you who know Paul Washer know that he has an incredible gift of preaching, but preaching which often focuses on our shortcomings as Christians to live holy lives. And uh, I know I sometimes come away from his sermons feeling a little bit beaten over the head by a stick. But I must say that I'm very grateful to the Lord for those times uh, when Paul Washer has been used by God uh, to beat me over the head with a stick. To, to highlight my sin uh, and to bring me back uh, to, to God. But as I was preparing, something was amiss in, in my thinking. And um, with some prayer and some consideration, I figured out what the problem was. I had been asked to preach on a specific verse. It was a one-off sermon. And, and I'd, as a result, not done the usual amount of work that we do as pastors in the week to, to kind of look at the broader context. That's one of the reasons why we like to normally preach our way through books of the Bible, so that we come to each portion of Scripture in the flow of the whole and in the context of the whole. Uh, a one-off sermon is, is much harder to do that, and I hadn't done that in Peter's whole book. I'd been given a verse, I'd been given a topic, the subject was holiness, I'd been encouraged by a, a godly pastor to, to preach it, brother, to gird up your loins, which by the way comes from this passage, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, and so I was kind of all ready to get the passage to say what I wanted it to say about holiness. But when I realized my mistake, I, I, I took a step back and I started to, to look at the purpose of Paul's letter started to look at the main themes, uh, sorry, of Peter's letter, 1 Peter. And as I looked at the main theme of 1 Peter, to my disappointment, I found that the whole letter was about grace. My heart sank, and this was my first opportunity to preach uh, to a group of about 50 pastors uh, in the KZN Baptist Association. I was asked by one of the senior guys to really kind of correct an imbalance uh, in the churches in Natal on this emphasis on grace, only to find that the verse that I had been given was a key verse in the center of a letter that is all about the grace of God to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet I'd been assigned this topic of holiness. And that's why I read uh, this whole chapter this evening, not to just extract these verses, as it were, out of context. If you turn to the very end of Peter's letter, the, the very last verses, chapter 5, verse 12, um, he, he greets the brothers at the end, and he says, or and he encourages them that, that this whole letter has been written to declare to them and to exhort them in the true grace of God in which we must stand firm. And so yes, Peter, 1 Peter is a very practical letter. Uh, it's a letter filled with instructions to the Christians in Asia Minor who were facing persecution and suffering, how to live holy lives in the midst of a corrupt and godless society. Uh, nevertheless, the main theme the scarlet thread running through the whole letter is that of grace. 
So as I came back then to my preparation and to the text that I want us to look at this evening, verses 13 to 16, I came to see afresh that a, a sermon on holiness is not something which is somehow in opposition to or tension with the doctrine of God's grace. But in actual fact, the grace of God to us in the gospel ultimately forms the only valid and deepest motivation for holiness. I think the problem that we have with Christians to this whole topic of holiness and living holy lives is when we disconnect holiness from grace. And so that's why the title this evening is Grace Motivated Holiness. And I hope that we can see together that we cannot have one without the other. Grace without holiness that leads to lawlessness, antinomianism, whereas holiness without grace leads to legalism and a dead orthodoxy. Now, instead, we need to see them in biblical harmony. The one feeds the other. And I hope that as we leave here tonight, we will be convinced of the fact that the more we understand about the grace of God to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, the more we will be motivated and empowered to actually live holy lives. So although my focus is on verses 13 to 16, I have read um, the whole first chapter and and I want us to see it in this bigger context. It seems that Peter has three things in mind in chapter one, each one motivated by God's grace to us. In verses um, three to 12, uh, we see that he says that present grace motivates our praise. This is clear in that whole first section that he is focusing on the grace that we have received in our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, in being born again uh, into this living hope of being guarded by God's power into an inheritance which is ours in Christ. And so as a result of this present grace, Peter just overflows with praise. Look at verse three, uh, verse six, and again, verse eight, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse six says, in this you rejoice. Verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So present grace that you and I have received as Christians, it motivates our praise. As we think about God's goodness to us, we should delight in doing what we've done today. As we've gathered this morning, as we've gathered this evening, as we've sung praises to God, where does that come from? It comes from a, a heart which overflows in praise for the grace that we have received uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ. But then jumping to verse 17 onwards to the end of the chapter, uh, Peter there wants us to see that past grace motivates our worship. And here I don't use worship in the limited sense that we speak of worshiping God in a church service, but more comprehensively as the scripture speaks of worship as living all of life in reverent fear of God as a living sacrifice to God. 
In, in verse 17, we, we read there, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways, the empty ways inherited from your forefathers at a great cost, not with perishable things like silver or gold, that's nothing. No, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. So Peter wants us to understand the great cost of our salvation. It was nothing less than the precious blood of Jesus. Your old life of sinfulness and being redeemed by God to a life of holiness cost God his own son. That was the price to pay for your sins. And so the same God who gave his own son unto death to redeem you to himself, this same God is the judge that you are going to stand before one day. And so we need to live our lives in, in fear, in reverent worship of God. Between our conversion and Christ's second coming, we are to live uh, as, as living sacrifices in fear uh, of this judge of all the earth. So present grace motivates our praise. Past grace, when we look at what Christ's death on the cross cost God, that motivates our true worship of God. But then sandwiched in between are these three little verses, verses 13 to 16, where Peter wants us to see that it's God's future grace which motivates our holiness. So, the preoccupation with grace is not the problem on condition that grace motivates not only our praise and not only our worship, but it also motivates our holiness. I think sadly today, because the emphasis uh, on, on grace in much preaching and teaching and books and podcasts within Christianity, there's been a downplaying on the importance of holiness. How often have you heard Christians say things like, well, holiness, that's Old Testament stuff. Holiness and obedience, that's the old covenant. We are no longer under the law. We are under grace. And so we don't need to worry about all this holiness and obedience stuff anymore. We are free. Have you heard things like that? Maybe you've even thought and said things like that. I'd like to suggest that that is totally unbiblical thinking. What we have in 1 Peter is like a three-legged stool. Uh, those are the three legs. You cannot claim to enjoy grace-motivated praise as a Christian, and you cannot know something of, of this reverent fear and worship of God, but then when it comes to holiness, your leg is very short. Your, your, your stool will topple over. It, it won't be stable. No, all three need to be kept in proportion, and all three are motivated by grace. What I've learned from this passage is that if I do not take my personal holiness seriously, if I'm not doing what Peter says in these verses, then it proves that I have not really understood God's grace. So this could not be more important for us as Christians today where a lot of pressure is being put on us to compromise. And sadly, a lot of that pressure is not from those in the world out there, very often it's coming from Christians within the church 
who are putting pressure on us to conform to lower and lower standards of holiness. I think a good example of this is how we've lost sight of the holiness of the Lord's day. If you as a Christian today take a stand to not do any work on a Sunday, if you take a stand, for example, like Eric Little did, to not compete in sport on a Sunday, or as a young person, you, you take a stand not to do homework or study for exams on a Sunday, if you take a stand as a, as a businessman or businesswoman to, to not be drawn into the office or to do emails or present presentations or quotes on a Sunday, you will find that the Muslims and the Hindus will respect you for that. The Jews will certainly respect you for that. I think even most non-religious people in this day and age will have to respect you for that. But very often those who will oppose you most will be your fellow Christians. I was amazed a, a number of years ago now, 15 years ago, we were living in England when the worldwide financial crisis broke out. I think it was 2008 or nine around there. And the American Senate was having an emergency gathering to develop a bailout plan for the American economy. I don't know if you remember that. And the person who was chairing that most crucial meeting in all of the world at that time was a Jewish man. And they were in the middle of their sessions, and the whole world's economy was waiting for the outcome of their deliberations to see how the government would bail out the banks when the sun began to set on Friday afternoon. And the Jewish man chairing the meeting stood up on worldwide television and said that he was a Jew, the Sabbath was about to begin, and so they would be stopping their meetings and would reconvene first thing on Sunday morning. There was no objection. No objection. And Sunday morning, all the Christians came back to work in the Senate after the Jewish man had just enjoyed keeping the Sabbath day holy. It was the 19th century Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane. He said, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. The greatest need of us as a congregation today is my personal holiness as a pastor. Our personal holiness as elders of this church but I would extend what McShane says and apply it to each and every one of you this evening. The greatest need of your spouse or your children, the greatest need of, of our unbelieving community in Johannesburg, whether it's at school or university or in the workplace, it is your personal holiness. Jesus was God in the flesh. He was the, the very holiness of God in human form. What did that look like? Well, he mixed with tax collectors and sinners. He spoke with them. He ate meals with them. He taught them. He loved them. But Jesus never blended in. He was in the world, but he was never of the world. And it's interesting when we look at the gospel that it was not the tax collectors and the sinners 
and the prostitutes and the crooks who rejected Jesus and who persecuted him. It was the religious people who hated Jesus. Why? Because he showed up their lack of holiness or their holiness without grace. The same is so often true today. So this is a, a crucial topic. What does it look like for us to be holy as God is holy as we live in a society today, where even within Christianity, uh, but also in the world out there, our holiness makes us look, sadly, very little different to the world around us. We've reduced the standards of God's holiness to make religious people feel comfortable, and in the process, we've lost our impact in the world. So let's come and look at verse 13 then, and we see that verse 13 starts with the word therefore, therefore, which is why we needed to spend some time looking at what has gone before, looking at the, the wonderful exposition of God's grace to us in Christ. What follows is now a response to the grace that you and I have received. And the main verb in verse 13 is found in the very middle of the verse. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, here's the verb, set your hope fully. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. That word, set your hope fully, that's the imperative, that's the command in the verse. And Peter says, in the light of the grace that you are enjoying in Christ, therefore, set your hope fully on the future grace that still awaits you when Christ returns, that will be brought to you at the coming of Jesus Christ. This is one of those already but not yet verses in the Bible. We are already saved but we are not yet fully saved. We've already received past grace at the cross, and we are already experiencing present grace by the Holy Spirit in the present, but we have not yet fully received the final installment of grace, which is coming at the glorification of Christ. So, so how in Peter's thinking are we to set our hope fully on the grace which will be revealed when Jesus returns? What does that look like? Well, he says, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. And I think the ESV brings this out more correctly than some of the other translations. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. There's a kind of continuous verbs. The main verb is set your hope fully. How do we do that? By preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded we set our hope fully on the revelation that is coming in Jesus Christ. That word for preparing uh, is the phrase that um, Gary quoted earlier. It's literally translated in the King James Version as gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your mind for action. It speaks of a person picking up those long flowing robes uh, and tucking them into your belt uh, so that your legs were freed for running or for work or for warfare. Preparing your mind for action. And so that coupled with being sober-minded speaks of not letting anything intoxicate or distract you from a given cause. And so here Peter is telling us that as Christians, 
we need to be preparing our minds for action. In other words, we need to, using this gird up the loins phrase, we need to free up our minds, our affections from anything that will hinder or hamper its movement and remove anything which will distract or intoxicate our thinking so that we can set our hope fully on the grace that is awaiting us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And already there's much, just very practical food for application here. Because if we are honest today, between the constant noise of the radio in our cars, the constant listening to our Spotify playlists, the constant scrolling through Instagram or YouTube or TikTok, the loyans of our minds are very seldom girded up for action. In actual fact, even without getting into the issue of intoxicating substances, we must confess that our minds are seldom sober due to the seductive intoxications of music and entertainment and media. No, says Peter. As we look forward with unfettered, unhindered, uncluttered hope of future grace, we need to free up our minds for action. I think, largely speaking, these days as Christians, we've lost the concept of a quiet time. A quiet time implies no music, no podcast, no YouTube video, even if it's Christian, it involves you taking your mind to the word of God and prayer and being ready for action. Look at verse 14. As we do this, he says, it will lead to, as we prepare our minds for action, as we focus on this future hope in Christ, we will be motivated to live holy lives. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so here's where I want to just end off practically to look at three aspects of grace-motivated holiness which Peter highlights in these verses. Grace-motivated holiness, it requires our obedience, it redirects our passions, and it reflects our God. Let's just look at those. Firstly, grace-motivated holiness requires our obedience. Let's just start with the obvious. This is a, a non-negotiable as Christians. And Peter assumes that those who've been chosen and saved by the grace of God and adopted into the family of God, which we considered this morning, that we will now conduct ourselves in a manner which bears witness to our new identity, that we will be who we are. We will be obedient children of God. And this should not surprise us because practical holiness in the form of obedience to God's laws and commands. This is not contrary to the new covenant in Jesus Christ. In actual fact, can I take you back to the failure of the old covenant and what was promised to the old covenant people in the new covenant? 
And we have two references, Jeremiah 31, verse 33. This is what God is promising to his Old Testament people. For this is the covenant that I will make. This is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write my law on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you see how, I, how our identity as Christians is bound up with the law of God, the character of God being written on our hearts. Ezekiel makes it even more specific where God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a, a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and what will my spirit do? He will cause you, he will empower you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, which have now been written on your heart. They're not external things anymore that are demanding and imposing on us. They are now the very things that our heart desires. So, so God's grace in salvation has not set us free from obedience. Rather, it demands obedience and it enables obedience from a new heart. This is a very simple test as to whether or not you are truly a believer or not today. Does your heart desire and delight to do the law and the will of God? Yes, we don't always get it right, and yes, we fail often. I'm not talking about that, but our heart longs to be who we are in Christ. In Peter's second letter, uh, he confirms that what was promised by God to Jeremiah and Ezekiel has become a reality for us who are in Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things, everything that pertains to life and godliness. Another word for holiness. Everything that we need for life and holiness has been given to us through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, which, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you and I may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Do you see this entire transformation that has been taken place in our hearts as the Holy Spirit enables us to be who we are in Christ? And so according to Peter, obedience to God's word is a requirement. And God's word and his spirit give us everything we need to live holy lives through our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So just simply this evening, this means there is no excuse whatsoever for disobedience. Every decision we make, every situation we face, every temptation we encounter, everything required to be holy has been given to us through the word of God in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Peter says he's done that for you so that you and I can escape the corruption of the world and our old sinful desires and we can live 
excellent lives to the glory of God. And so as we grow in the grace of God, as we grow in our love for Jesus and our knowledge of him, we will grow in holiness. And that very simply requires our obedience to the commands of God. But more than just external obedience to the will of God, uh, that kind of external obedience that Muhammad spoke about this morning that was this utter bondage in his life, that's not what Peter's calling us to here. He says that grace-motivated holiness doesn't just require our obedience, but it actually redirects our passions. Verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Before you were born again, you were slaves to the passions of the sinful nature. You desired all that is sinful, and you were enslaved to those desires to live in accordance with them. But as new creations in Christ, you've been set free from all that which previously held power in your life, and you've been given new passions, new desires, which now glorify God. Let me quote Paul Washer this evening. Paul Washer says, the evidence that you are a Christian is that the things you once loved, you now hate, and the things you once hated, you now love. I had a a conversation with someone this week who was recently saved and they spoke about how they'd grown up in a Christian home and, and up to six months ago they came to church and they did all the external things but they hated it. And since their conversion they cannot get enough of being in the house of God and studying the word of God and singing praises to God. What's changed the things that they once hated, they now love, and the things that they once loved, they now hate. That is this transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is urging us that as we set our hope firmly on the grace which is still ahead and waiting for us, we are to no longer act in accordance with the, the passions of our, of our BC days, of our former sinful nature, but we are to redirect our passions towards God and his glory and excellence. So let me ask you right now just to think about this question. What passions are motivating you? Right now, you're busy thinking about stuff. Maybe your mind's all over the place. Maybe you've already made plans for what you're gonna do this week. Maybe you've got goals that you've set for yourself six months down the road. What's motivating your passions? Or what passions are motivating you, rather? Is it still the old passions before you became a Christian? Pride and lust and greed and independence and money and sport? As Christians, we can be very good at hiding all of our old sinful passions under a cloak of spirituality. In his book, Crazy Busy, Kevin DeYoung says that one of the dangers of the busyness of our world that we live in today is that it hides the rot inside our souls. And as I've been thinking about that statement, the more I'm seeing this tendency in my own life, and I'm seeing it in the lives of others around me. There are often deep spiritual problems in our hearts. 
But when you inquire as to a person's spiritual health, the true rot and decay is so often hidden under a cloak of, oh, I'm just so busy. I'm just unbelievably busy. And the minute you start to tell someone about how busy your life is, well, the conversation takes a different turn. And often that busyness can even be good Christian activities in the life of the church. But nevertheless, it's a busyness which is hiding and choking out the spiritual life of us. No, says Peter, do not be conformed to those former passions. Paul says the same in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So holiness starts in the heart. It's starts with the discerning and the putting to death of the passions of our former ignorance. And then it requires a redirecting, which the Holy Spirit does, but we've got to work with Him, a redirecting of our passions and our affections towards God. Another Scottish pastor, Thomas, uh, Thomas Chalmers, he preached a wonderful sermon uh, entitled The Expulsive Power uh, of a New Affection. Uh, and he says this, a moralist, this is someone, a legalist, will be unsuccessful in trying to displace his love of the world by reviewing the ills of the world. No, misplaced affections need to be replaced by the far greater power of the affections of the gospel. So grace-motivated holiness will redirect our passions away from those empty, misplaced things of the world towards the far greater and more powerful affections of the gospel. And then finally, uh, we see this evening that grace-motivated holiness reflects our God. And this ties in with what we looked at this morning um, as the household of God, like father, like son, uh, we see here in verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like God, more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, living lives that reflect the Lord Jesus Christ in everything. And so as we set our hope firmly on the future grace which awaits us when Jesus returns, we should surely desire nothing more than to live a life and to work as hard as we can to direct our lives in the direction of where we're going to spend all eternity. John Benton says, we do not strive to be holy in order to be saved. That's legalism. We do not strive to be holy in order to prove that we are saved. That's bondage. We seek to be holy because that is God's purpose in saving us and because we have come to be thankful to him. It's grace-motivated holiness. If, if what we were saved to be is holy and what we will be for all eternity is holy, then surely it follows that between our salvation and eternity, we should strive to be what we were saved to be and what we will one day become, which is like the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So the more we understand of God's grace in our lives, the more we understand of what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to, the more we will be consumed with a desire to to be holy as God is holy and for our passions and our affections to be redirected by the Holy Spirit in all of our conduct. So may God help us as Hebrews 12, 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Hi, Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you this evening that you are a God who has saved us from what we once were to be these trophies of grace, trophies of grace which are to live out your character in this world. Lord, we know that each one of us here tonight has a tendency either towards legalism, where we become harsh and legalistic and proud in our attitude towards others who do not live up to our standards, or we are those who perhaps steer away from your law towards a a spirit of lawlessness which does not represent the grace of Christ. Lord, we pray this evening that we would not see grace and holiness at odds, but we'll see them as the beautiful pattern of who you have saved us to be. People who are filled with the, the grace of God, a love for God because of all that you have done for us and a an unquenchable desire to be holy, to to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ in our thoughts, in our speech, in our relationships, and as a church. And so we do pray that you would help us to be transformed into your likeness, and that as we do so more and more, we would become more the people that you have called us to be. For your glory and for your kingdom's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.